All right. Love the sinner, hate the sin. How many of you heard that phrase? Is it true? The sentiment that stands behind it, I think, may be true in some degree in the sense of it's someone's attempt to capture the idea, in some cases, that God is compassionate towards sinners while at the same time not accepting their sin. The problem is that gets twisted all sorts of ways. What is our attitude supposed to be towards sinners? In Psalm 5, we see several responses that David has towards sinners, but it's fascinating that he has at least two of them are deliver me from sinners and punish sinners. And so if that is in fact a legitimate thing to pray, that seems at odds with a phrase like love the sinner but hate the sin. So what is the biblical truth that we see here about our response to sinners? How do David's requests line up with God's character? Broadly speaking, Psalm 5 is a lament. Uh, you might see at the top of your uh, psalm there, uh, for the choir director for flute accompaniment, uh, honestly, there's a lot of guesses about what the word that's translated there means, but probably the best ones are that it's some sort of musical notation. Uh, again, as, a, as you'll recall, those inscriptions above the psalms are very ancient. They're helpful descriptions, but I don't think that we would view them as inspired in the same way that the words, the text, is itself. And so, uh, lest we stay up at night wondering, what does this word mean and how is it going to affect my sanctification? Hopefully none of us are going to feel that way. But uh, generally we would take uh, the ones that are not historical descriptions to be descriptions of musical accompaniment and so forth. David is indicated as the author of this psalm. We don't know the historical setting of when he wrote it, but we know that there were a number of cases in which David was opposed by enemies. So let's look at verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. How does he start out this psalm? In verses 1 through 3, I think he says this, Hear me, God. He asks for God to listen, and he sort of builds on the ideas and intensifies his request before God. When he says, listen to my groaning or consider my groaning, uh, this word could also be translated sighing. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says meditation. It's, it's a barely audible expression of words that is breaking out into actual words, and this anguish that's going on in his heart is because of this opposition of enemies. So then that moves us on to verse 2. He says, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Notice the words of relationship here. My cry for help, my King and my God. Notice that in contrast to places in Scripture where people will talk about your God does such and such, or the God of Israel does this another nation speaking of the Israelites. In this case, here's someone who knows God and is speaking of God as my God. So he's approaching him and he's saying, listen to my cry because I belong to you. I know you. I'm one of your people. Not only does he belong to God, but he is praying to God. And that's significant, not because we don't know that we're supposed to do that, but because we don't always do that. Our 
prayers are not always to God. In our culture, for example, uh, we're going to come up on Thanksgiving in a few months. And a lot of people will say, well, you need to be thankful. To whom? Demands an object. You can't just be praying. You can't just be spiritually minded. Spirituality, true Christianity, demands an object. The only proper object of our faith, our love, our devotion, our prayer is God. And David gets it right here. For to you I pray. And then he says, In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning I will order to you and watch. Why did I leave out my prayer? If you'll notice, it's in italics. The object is not included in this sentence. And so there's three, I think, reasonable suggestions that have been made for what fills the blank. The NASB takes it as prayer. Another one that has been suggested would be sacrifice. Consider, for example, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. He orders, he lays out the wood, he prepares the sacrifice according to the parameters that he's supposed to. It's potential that David is saying, in the morning you're going to hear my voice as I go and arrange my sacrifice and come into your presence. That would fit with the context, for example, in verse 7, where it says, in your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. So I think that one seems quite plausible. And then the third option that has been suggested is that I will order my plea, my case, the anguish of my heart that I'm laying out before you, God. I'm going to lay it all out again. I'm going to plead my case with you. I'm going to appeal with you to you to work on my behalf. All three of those, I think, are legitimate potential objects for I will order. Regardless of which one you take, as the uh, fill-in-the-blank, so, so to speak, of this particular verse, he is expressing a confidence before God. Why do I say that? He says, and I will watch. So it's not just, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to sort of go about the rest of my day and not really pay any more attention to it. It's almost as though he's saying, I'm going to, in the morning, I'm going to pray, offer sacrifices, or plead before you, God, and then I'm going to wait for you to answer. He's expecting God to hear him. He's expecting God to answer. And so all of this together fits with that idea, hear me, God, give ear to my words, O Lord. And so out of the difficulty of his circumstance, out of the anguish of his heart, out of the uncertainty of what's going on in his life, David is saying, God, hear me. And I think that we too can approach God with that same sort of need and expectation. Ask God to hear your prayer. What's the basis of his plea? We see it in verses 4 through 7. Essentially, as we've seen in a number of these psalms, it is God's character. What is God like? Verse 4, you hate evil. Verses 4 through 6, you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. So what does he start out? He starts out by saying what God is not. God is not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. I think this is important for us to consider, particularly as we come to Acts 2, uh, uh, coming up as we study through the book of Acts, because in Acts 2, there's a verse, Acts 2:23, where it says, you by the hands of wicked men crucified Christ and fulfilled God's plan, paraphrasing here. Uh, how can it be that God 
accomplishes something good through sin, or even if we put it more specifically and more bluntly, how could sin accomplish God's plan? And the answer is, not in such a way that violates what David's saying here. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. And so when we consider the problem of evil, which is that there's evil in this world, and yet there is a good and a powerful and an all-knowing God, we cannot look at the evil around us and say, well, it's okay because God just sort of makes it all turn out good in the end. We can never say that evil is good. Now, does God accomplish His purpose in all things? Yes. Does God rule over all things? Yes. Is God a God who says sin is okay and it's just no big deal because I'm just going to work it all out? No. And so we have to be careful in our attempt to solve the mysteries of life that we do not uh, oppose the character and the picture of God that is described for us in Scripture. If we had to put it more specifically, I think we could say God can and does use evil but is not corrupted by, guilty of, caused to be sinful by the evil that is present in the world. How do we know this? Well, we look at verse 5. He hates the boastful. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Going back to how I began. Love the sinner, hate the sin? Seems to be saying here that God hates the sinner. And I think the problem for us is when we think about hatred, we tend to think about merely the emotional response. The surge of anger that comes over us when someone does something that just really ticks us off. And that flash of hatred, anger, frustration, that's all that we can think of. But consider how this concept is used elsewhere in Scripture. In Romans 9, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It's not really an emotional statement, it's a factual statement of the relationship that God has toward one person and against another person. God chose to use Jacob, God chose to punish Esau, God's disposition toward the evil is that they are not his people and that they are in opposition to him. And how can a holy God do anything except express judgment against those who live and dwell and revel in sin? He can't. Why do the boastful not stand before his eyes? Well, God exalts the humble, but God opposes the proud. That's a concept that's taught many places in Scripture. I suppose it would be wise for us at this moment to ask ourselves the question, am I proud? Because if I am proud, God will not prosper me. What does it say in Proverbs? Pride comes before destruction and a haughty, proud, boastful spirit before a fall. I say, no, it does. yes, it does. How many people have there been who boast in their own accomplishments, who boast in themselves, and God cast them down. From Nebuchadnezzar to the CEOs of companies to pastors who think that they're above following the things that they preach, whoever it is, God does not take a favorable perspective on those who are boastful and proud. So we should not be proud people. What does pride stem from? It stems from comparison. I'm better than you for this reason, generally speaking, that has little to do with me and myself, 
and everything to do with God's kindness to me through other people. Or as Paul puts it in Corinthians, comparing themselves with themselves and measuring themselves by themselves, they are not wise. And a bit later, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act like you didn't receive it? Someone's proud of their height. What do you have to do with that? Jesus said you can't add an inch to your stature. Sometimes as we grow older, we lose an inch, but we can't add an inch, right? Um, your education. A lot of times that had a lot more to do with parents and family and other factors that didn't really have a whole lot to do with us. They say, well, but I re worked really hard and I got a good job and all of these sorts of things. Who made you with the ability that you could do those things? God. So why boast? God does not honor the boastful. You destroy those who speak falsehood. Well, lying's like a little white lie. It's not a big deal, right? It says God destroys those who speak falsehood. And the second phrase, the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. What in the world does murder have to do with lying? I think the intersection of these two ideas is this. If I am so selfish that I am willing to bend the truth and behave wrongly toward other people, there's not that much of a difference between the person who's willing to slander someone and the person that's willing to murder them. And that seems like a far connection between those two, but think about it. If I'm willing to do harm by, to someone in my words, why wouldn't I eventually be willing to do harm to them in my actions? David's saying, God will destroy those who speak falsehood. We saw last week that there were those who were speaking falsehood about God's people, specifically about David as the king. And he's reminded about the fact that God's evaluation was the one that counts. But there are those who speak falsehood in any number of ways. Sometimes we get very frustrated by this and we think it's our job to take them down. And it's not wrong to oppose falsehood. It's not wrong to oppose deceit. But know that God is going to deal with the people who speak things that are false. I saw a cartoon a while back and, and the wife is telling her husband, you need to go to bed. He says, I can't. Somebody's wrong on the internet. <laughs> if you wait until that's all solved before you sleep, sleep's going to be a long time coming. There are always people who will lie there are always people who deceive. There are always people who will have a hateful attitude toward other people that sometimes shows in wrong words of slander and sometimes shows in wrong actions of, of even leading up to murder. God's going to deal with them because God doesn't tolerate it. doesn't mean that we should be okay with it, but we should rest in the fact that God will deal with it. Why is this significant? Verse 7, you accept the righteous. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. And so David is contrasting here God's attitude toward those who are sinful and not his people versus those who are righteous and are God's people. What's God's attitude toward the one? Judgment, hatred, opposition. What's God's attitude toward his people? Love, mercy, care, meeting their needs, accepting them into his presence. By your loving kindness, the reason that David could enter God's house, 
even though he was a man of bloodshed, even though he was not perfect, is because of the relationship that he had with God, by God's abundant loving kindness. God's mercy and faithfulness and goodness to him was the basis of him coming before God's presence. When it says at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you, it's not a mistake of some kind. Even though Solomon's temple was not yet built, David's simply saying the place where God is worshipped, God's temple, I will go there, I will bow before him, I will worship him because I belong to him. Hear me, God. Remember your character, God. Lead the righteous as you punish the wicked, God. We see this in verses 8 through 10. O Lord, lead me in righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. We would expect to see a different preposition there, right? Lead me in righteousness against my foes, uh, be, uh, away from my foes, deliver me from them, something along those sorts of lines. But he says, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Why would he say, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes? Because they are opposing him? Because he doesn't want to be tempted to fall into the same sin that they are experiencing? Because he knows that he needs God's guidance because of the presence of these enemies around him. When he says, make your way straight before me, certainly that would have echoes for us of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, he will make your paths straight. He's praying here for God's guidance. Lead me in your righteousness. Again, I think David has a sense here that he's not perfect. He needs to grow in righteousness. He needs to reflect God's character more. The only one who can help him with that is God. And so he's saying, Lord, lead me in your righteousness. Guide me. Help me. Why? Because the wicked are most certainly wicked. We see this in verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. I don't know if you've ever encountered people like this. Everything that they say, you can't trust it. They say one thing to this person, they say another thing to that person, uh, they say I'll do this, they never follow through, all these sorts of things. We have to watch out for those sorts of tendencies in our own lives. Because it's really easy to get worked up about them as we see them in other people. That guy never follows through. And then we find ourselves doing the same thing and we have to say, God, help me not to be this way because that's a characteristic of those who are wicked. They say one thing and then they don't do it. There's much that could be said on that subject from Ecclesiastes 5 and other passages about the making of vows and promises in God's sight of Jesus' words about let your yes be yes and your no be no. But well, let's go on to the next phrase. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their entire being is destruction. I don't think he's specifically saying in this case that they're headed for destruction, although that's clear from a number of other passages. I think he's saying you hang around them, your life will be wrecked just like theirs is. You can't trust what they say. They're going to bring you to destruction. Their throat is an open grave. The words that come forth from their mouth is like if you dug up a spot where you just buried an animal and it's rotting and it stinks and it's awful. The words that come forth from them 
the character of their lives is repulsive because it's saturated with evil. And yet they flatter with their tongue. Even though their goal is to lead you to destruction, even as they are headed to destruction, they still flatter you and make you think everything's okay. I think David's saying, God, what's your response going to be to these people? What is the only proper response? Look at verse 10. Hold them guilty, O God. Lead the righteous. Because the wicked are definitely wicked, punish them for their sins. When he says hold them guilty, he's not saying create guilt that's not there. He's saying they're already guilty. Act upon it. We look at that and we say, well, that seems kind of a hateful thing to say, but what is the proper response of a holy God to sin? In some cases, he does show mercy. But certainly God is well within his rights to punish sin when he sees it. And David is saying, here's this situation that I can't deal with, that I can't solve, where there are people who are clearly wicked opposing me, and I know I'm not perfect, but by your grace, I'm one of your people, God. You need to deal with them because I can't. Hold them guilty because they deserve it. By their own devices, let them fall. What's he saying? I think he's saying, God, all you have to do is let go. And their lives will spin out of control and they will destroy themselves. And I think we have to be cautious because we might say these things out of a vindictive spirit. And all of us have known family or friends or uh, co-workers or different people who are headed down this path. I think awareness of those things ought to rein in the vindictiveness and selfishness that might come into our hearts and violate the spirit of when Jesus gave the parable and says, here's the guy that was forgiven a thousand talents, went after the guy that owed him one, and was shaking him, and I'm going to attack you and throw you in jail. We can't adopt that spirit. And yet we have to have the same attitude that God has towards sin. Part of the other safeguard is to say, where's their sin in my own life? Lord, help me to deal with that. But that doesn't mean that we don't address the sin of others. That doesn't mean that we don't say, God, deal with this sin. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out. This thrust them out probably has reference in David's context to the idea of they would be expelled from the covenant community. And this is a serious thing because to be put out from the nation of Israel, typically the only way that you got out was through death. You blasphemed God, you were stoned, you dishonored your parents, you were stoned. David is saying they deserve punishment. Why? Ultimately, it's because they've rejected God. David is concerned about it because it's impacting his personal life, but ultimately he's concerned about it because they have opposed God's character. They have rejected God's rule over them. In much the same spirit that we saw in Psalm 2, the kings, the nations, they gathered together, they said, let's overthrow God's anointed, let's reject him. And David is saying, 
God, deal with them according to your justice. So ask God to hear because of his goodness to his people. Ask God to lead even as he punishes the wicked because of his character. But finally, ask God for shelter and for help. We see this in verses 11 and 12. We see first this idea of sheltering with protection. He says, Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. May you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. So he's saying, God, protect, shelter, give security and refuge to your people. What's the result of that? They will rejoice in you. They will find joy in God who is their refuge. They will exult in God who is their shelter. Who is he speaking of? Those who love your name. God's people, those who are worshiping God, following God, living in a way that's pleasing to God. He's saying, don't do it simply because we're asking you to do it. Do it because it will result in your glory. They will praise you. They will exult in you. But he also says, surround them with your favor. Why? Specifically, he says that God does do this, but I think in his prayer is the idea and please continue to do this. Verse 12, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. This has at least two important truths. God is the source of blessing. We tend to think that blessing can come from a variety of sources. Ultimately, the thing that underlies all of them is God and His work. God abounds further in favor toward His people. You surround Him with favor as with a shield. God shows his kindness and his goodness to us. And David is saying, if you hear my prayer, if you remember your character, if you guide me while punishing the wicked, here's what's going to happen. I will rest secure in you. I will rejoice in you. And it will result in your glory. And notice the fact that he is not just speaking of himself. This is not something we sort of go it alone. This is something that is done in the company of others who follow God. And that is another thing that should encourage and help us when we face opposition from the wicked. We're not alone in the fight. There are others standing by us who follow God. Even Elijah thought he was all alone. God was with him, which was more than enough. But there were a whole lot of other people who hadn't bowed to Baal and were right there trying to follow God too. So what might it look like to pray this passage? There's many themes that we could develop from it. But perhaps a simple thing like this. God, I come with confidence to you. You are a good God. You can deliver the righteous and punish the wicked. So shelter and surround me with your power and your blessing. God is a God who hears. Otherwise, David wouldn't have been making this prayer to him. So rest in him. When there are enemies when there are circumstances in life, when there are difficulties, seek God. Let's go now to our time of prayer, and we'll pray this on behalf of others in our congregation.